0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's such a pleasure to be joined by Margot Shea, author of Derry City, Memory and Political Struggle in Northern Ireland, published in June of 2020 by the University of Notre Dame Press. Margot is Associate Professor of History at Salem State University. Margot, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Ryan. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Well, um, before we get into this excellent book, I I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you uh, to work on this book, Dairy City.
1: Um, Sure, I would be happy to. So I actually... um, studied urban studies in college at the University of Pennsylvania, and I had a career in the not-for-profit sector and in building university community partnerships uh, before I came to graduate study in history and, and embarked on the not-very-wild adventure that is teaching and scholarship. Uh, it was, believe it or not, a book that made me want to go to dairy in the first place, Um, The book was Reading in the Dark by scholar um, Seamus Dean, who died just about 10 days ago, a real loss for Derry and for Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's a brilliant book. I think everybody should read it. I guess what I can say about the book um, is that it presented a world to me um, that, that made a lot of sense in its complexity. So family was everything, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was also extremely fraught. Um, The same for neighborhood and community. Um, In this book, the living and the dead rubbed elbows. History, social analysis, faith, magical realism, um, the consequences of the past on the present, the fact that marginalized and invisible people often knew the most, um, the heavy hands of power and the ways that people slip out of and around power, Um, all of this really spoke to me in ways that I still sort of seek to understand. I had been in Northern Ireland as a teenager in County Fermanagh um, when the troubles were still very much um, an ongoing concern. Um, But I had never been back until I read Reading in the Dark and I decided that in the wake of the Belfast Agreement, in the spring of 1998 that I wanted to go to Derry, and um, I made plans to do that right around the time, the sort of planning for this year and a half in Derry at McGee, a campus of the University of Ulster, doing campus community partnerships. It sort of, um, my planning occurred squarely between the Belfast agreement, Agreement and the OMA bombing. And so I arrived in Northern Ireland uh, not as a student of history, but sort of as someone who had done a lot of community-based work um, at a very tender moment, right, where the peace was still fragile, and yet the the the, the resolve, the resolve to change, um, and the the tenderness around what it had been like to live in the past. You know sort of thirty years of of um, of externalized conflict, but obviously, as my book shows generations of of a different kind of maybe quieter conflict um that was so present and uh, so ultimately I Um, went back to school. I started to study public history, which is really about the way the past lives in the present. And it's also about the ways that we um, engage with one another with respect and with curiosity um, around different and very contested versions of the past and, um, and it, was in, it was in that role as a grad student that I ended up coming back to dairy um, as part of my studies. I was working on a um, mapping memorials uh, project, um, mapping sort of memorials of the conflict. And I was focusing on dairy. And in, as part of that process, it just became really obvious to me that the nationalist, largely Catholic community of that city had very few kind of bricks and stone um, articulations of memory in the landscape. Um, Something that is so, Mm -hmm. so familiar for people who know the city of Derry or Londonderry um, are the walls, right? And the walls They are so evocative of the city's 17th century history, um, and they kind of shape a memorial logic and a a kind of language. And so it really surprised me that people would talk about the walls when talking about um, a kind of um, Protestant or Unionist memorial tradition, And the parades around the walls, very much tied together, right? Um, And then they would talk about the murals, right? For nationalist and kind of Catholic, um, urban, largely working class communities in the city. And it just struck me as so fascinating and also something like that sat oddly, that these memorial languages were separated um, by like 300 years. So that's what led me into, um, research on memory and, and ultimately that really became a kind of effort to unpack how people who don't necessarily have access to the record, let alone the archive, um, make sense of the past and engage with the past and, sort of carry through the important lessons of the past to generations that come up behind them. So I guess, um, you know, I'm fascinated and always have been fascinated as someone who started in the nonprofit sector and as someone who started um, studying cities and looking at cities and how how we shape them and how we move around them. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all that Derry would become a place of fascination, but I will also say that Derry, kind of over the past 20 years has become kind of a second home. I've returned often. Um, I've stayed for as little as a week, as long as, you know, eight months in the intervening time since that big visit or not visit stay um, between 90, 1998 and 2000. And, um, Yeah, it's a place I like to be. And it's a place I care about a lot. And so I think the book was born of that as well. And uh, I'm not ashamed of it, right? Despite the kind of pressures to remain objective. um, I, I still think that it's important to understand that the project is an intellectual project, but it is also um, a, a huge part of my life.
0: Well Margaret, thank you so much for sharing um that story. I think it really helps us to get a sense of the 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 heart and the the labor that went into this book and and it really, comes through. So to get us oriented um, into your book, I- I'd like to start with a little bit about just the city of Derry. Not all of our listeners might be very familiar. Uh, maybe they've seen the, the, the popular Channel 4 show Derry Girls, which um, is, is a real hoot if, if you're listening and you haven't seen it. But er- early in your book, you mention that Derry is a kind of microcosm of the conflicts of Northern Ireland as a whole. I wonder what are some of the key events in the history of this city that make it a particularly um, fruitful case study for you to explore?
1: Um, you know, I think that as a, as a student, and I, when I started to study place and history and memory, um, there is this term, one space, many places, right? So you have this one physical space and yet it means many things to many people and the ways that people prescribe sort of relevance and significance is so much related to their own situatedness. And so for me, London uh, Londonderry, the maiden city, stroke city, Derry stroke Londonderry, right? Just the way we talk about it and the ways that when you're in polite company and you don't know where people sort of fit within the kind of structure, the way you try to avoid saying the city's name, right? The city on the foil, right? You know, it, it, it's telling um, that just the, the, the ways that we sort of identify this place Um, is still very much and has been for hundreds of years, a kind of spot of contention. Um, So, I mean, there's like a really big Wikipedia, you know, page about the name dairy or London dairy. Um, But I I think it's just fascinating for me to simply say that um, every time the name changed, it was kind of uh, a, a harbinger of of political change and economic change. So you know, um this city was sacred and important um to folks who identified as Catholic who were strongly, you know, related to a, a kind of Irish understanding of um this part of the world because um there was a, a an important monastery in the fifth century um in you know in in Dera, which literally in Gaelic means the Oak Grove. Um, but during the era of Elizabethan plantation, this site was seen as so strategic and such an important location and a kind of, um, and a, a, really important place to, um, to, I don't know if you want to say control, but to inhabit and make part of settlement um, and so London was added to this term because it was um, the livery drivers of London who incorporated this new settlement as part of plantation. And it was a celebration of this connection between London, between England and this place in Ireland, right? And so, you know, the, this, this imaginary that dates all the way back to these kind of origin moments of histories, right? Right um the um the plantation for those who came as part of it and their descendants and then this kind of like deeply kind of like mystical catholicism you know related in this oak grove that had also been you know maybe according to some a site of of pagan druidism um for catholics there there's this this connection um i also think that it's important to understand that You know, the siege of of Derry in 1688, 1689 became huge in terms of people's understanding of sacrifice and vulnerability um, in in a Protestant Unionist kind of um, tradition. And Ian um, McBride has written about that a whole lot um but for for irish people for people who identify uh, in in the north in ireland in the diaspora derry is also the site of bloody sunday so immediately below those walls there is what is you know referred to sometimes as the killing field where 13 protesters in a civil rights march um were killed as part of um a special armed forces um attempt to, you know, whatever language you want to use to secure it, to uh, infiltrate it, right? Even, even our, even the vocabulary itself, even the language of explanation itself is deeply loaded. But for many around the world who identify um, as Irish or hyphenated Irish, dairy as the site of Bloody Sunday is iconic in terms of the injustices and the fight for justice um, for underrepresented and minoritized uh, nationalists in the North.
0: I loved the opening kind of anecdote of the the 10-year-old girl kicking, uh, throwing a rock uh and shouting i've been waiting 50 years for this um it's just such, <laughs> it, it, it really encapsulates this idea of of memory as a way of of this connection to a story that can you know be so much bigger than our particular moment it seems like a, a central idea in your book is that the role of memory um has been under under appreciated in the the lead up to the troubles there's a, a narrative that the troubles just erupted out of nowhere. but it seems like a big part of your book is that no, this memory maybe the function of memory changed, but the memory had been developed for for about a century. Is that a, a good summary of how you're trying to to tell this story of a, of a, a bigger history of memory?
1: I think that I think that's sort of the result, but it wasn't necessarily the aim. I'll tell you when I read that book, Reading in the Dark, by Seamus Dean that I talked about earlier on, um, there was this scene really early in the book when the narrator uh, was a little boy and he talks about watching another boy. um, His name was Rory Hannaway who tried to catch a lift on the back of a lorry um, or a truck, right? So he's like poised right behind it. He's ready to jump on this lorry and then the driver just backed up suddenly. And so this little boy went under the wheel And the narrator is talking about seeing this happen. He's standing on top of a wall and he can see everything. He saw the police arrive, you know, and for, you know, Catholic nationalist boys living in the bog side, um, the police were kind of the number one enemy, right? And he watched one of the cops start sort of hyperventilating and then throw up. Right at see at just the horror and the sympathy of seeing this little boy, you know, mushed by a lorry, um, and so the narrator is like feeling pity for this police officer, and that is just so unacceptable. And he goes on to say that about you know three four months later. He's talking with some other boys in his class. And one of the boys says, you know, that Rory Hannaway had been run over by a police car and that police car hadn't even bothered to stop. And so here's the narrator, right? Hmm. And he's going like, oh, that's absolutely not what happened because I was there and I watched it. But actually, like, he says, I started to feel better stopped feeling sympathy for the police. And I mm-hmm. felt a real sorrow for Rory's mom and for that lorry, the, the lorry driver who hadn't worked since. And so that story always stuck in my head because I was yeah. fascinated, not so much by the kind of knee jerk reaction of like, you know, yo, that other kid got it all wrong. But I yeah. realized that What scholars of memory, particularly a guy um, called Henry Glassy, who did a huge um, work of scholarship, um, ethnographic scholarship in Northern Ireland in the 80s, um, he said, you know, stories about the past coordinate multiple responsibilities to time, to the past event, to the present situation, to the future of the community. And so I began to think about memory and the work of memory and the layers of memory um, less about what it cannot tell us, right? It cannot be necessarily a reliable um, record of events, for example. And I started to think instead about what memory can tell us, right? Memory is so often castigated and sort of shamed by historians for the ways that it gets things wrong um, and I started to think with that story really central in my mind about the ways that memory um in rearranging the facts also constructs a worldview that is very much true. Right? So mm-hmm. there's like, you know, the 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 truth of this. Um, is is not in the events that happen the truth of it is in the lived experience of a minority community in you know in this city or a minoritized community in the city um, often feeling like um, the structures of power and the representatives of those structures of power um, not only are not for them but in in some real tangible ways kind of um, serve to grow the space or accentuate the spaces between the two communities. Um, And that's I think that's really what kind of got me on the path. I did not intend to write a book about um, a a kind of latent nationalism or a a latent cultural nationalism Mm -hmm. in the city of Derry. I didn't really, to be honest with you, Ryan, I didn't expect to find that. I didn't think that it would appear, um, and you know, and certainly, people can argue that um, that some of it is a rather enthusiastic interpretation on my part, and that's okay. Um, I am I'm, I'm confident enough in the way the pieces come together to sort of make this other argument that comes through in the book that I think you're um, pointing to here, which is to say that for a community that didn't have access to traditional sort of roots to power and authority. Um, and who for, you know, a somewhat significant period between the 1920s, um, with, um, the, the kind of with partition and the establishment of the Northern Irish state and the, um, the eruption, you know, quote unquote, uh, of the troubles in the late 1960s, there was a, um, a somewhat important, um, constriction of Irish nationalist, um, articulations, gestures, sentiments, public kinds of statements in public spaces and public life. So within that context of, um, of constriction or regulation or, um, skepticism about those kinds of expressions, it came to me over the course of conducting research that memory became um, a way of telling the story, but kind of telling it slant, right? Like Emily Dickinson Dickinson talks about poetry, telling the truth, but telling it slant. Memory kind of became this way to talk about um, a sense of of frustration, a sense of loss, a sense of hope, a sense of Irish identity in Northern Ireland, without running afoul of um, of authorities, and also I think within a culture that values politeness and values politesse and values civility, um, which is very much a culture in Derry. Um, this this kind of like construction of memory in order to talk about what's really going on now um, was also a means of kind of maintaining peace outwardly, if that makes any sense.
0: Oh, it does. Thank you, Margaret. So in, in the, the first part of this book, you're, you're dealing with um, pre-partition. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the kinds of um, battles of commemorations that are going on as, as a, a way of of kind of recovering the true past of dairy, um, from, from different, um uh, perspectives, different slants, uh, what's going on underneath all of these, uh, these parades and these holiday celebrations and, and what are some of the different versions of a uh, past for dairy that are being celebrated?
1: Yeah. So, um, So it was actually um, 100 years after the siege of Derry, um, 1688-89. So 1788-89 was the beginning of kind of major commemorative celebrations of the siege, right? And so um, by the time my narrative starts in the 1800s, you've got a really well-developed and robust kind of memorial um, language around Mm -hmm. the siege of Derry. And so, um, and you have a a, an, a municipal government that is until 1897 um, constituted completely by um, members of the community who represent a kind of a Protestant tradition and a tradition that um, feels deeply connected. To Great Britain and to the United yeah. Kingdom. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that I find really funny in the 18, you know, the late 1890s is that um, these first nationalist Catholic um, council members just start freaking out. Right. They're just like, oh, my God, why are we spending all of this um why are we spending all of this public money for decorations and for lights and for celebrations of this, you know, history that really we think has been created and constructed to deny us our place, you know, and our right to kind of be full members of this community. So a lot of these fights are sort of, you know, kind of um, objections to the memorial traditions that the city um, has really um, developed and concretized over, over a century by this point. And then you have, um, you have a couple of different things that I think are interesting. You know, the one that um, I really loved reading about, and it was actually an MA student who first wrote about um, St. Columba Day right? And the kind of, um, the, if you are familiar with Eric Hobsbawm, but the invention of tradition, right? This idea that you invent a holiday, you invent a kind of sacred connection to an event in the past. Um, well, Father Willie Doherty in Derry in 1897 kind of constructed this, um, this saints day, this patron saint of, of the city of Derry, um, was Colum Kill or St. Columba. And so, um, in these, you know, this early moment, it's just so fascinating that right exactly when nationalists kind of attain a little bit of political power, they're also beginning to construct their own sort of, you know, parallel, I don't know if it's competing, but it's certainly a very different memorial tradition and memorial narrative that focuses on Catholicism, that focuses on Gaelic, that focuses on connections with Donegal um, and sort of Western Irish wild Ulster, quote unquote, traditions and ways of doing and being. Um, So you have, uh, you know, this like the immersion, like almost overnight, you have this huge um, celebratory tradition which is also fascinating because it develops its own sort of sense, like street sense, right? So um, most people who know anything about the unionist tradition in Northern Ireland know that the mural tradition dates back um, to the late 19th century, early 20th century, and is a really fascinating, like the, the, the murals that are located In Unionist communities, are had been often painted by family members that are taught by the earlier generation. They're incredible kind of works of art, and they depict the Battle of the Boyne, the Siege of Derry, King William of Orange, right? And they sort of lay out um, in this very sort of visual way, but also in a very kind of material way within the streets of areas and interface areas. um, These stories. And so um, Catholics didn't have that, but they had um, a tradition of street arches and street decorations. They're easier to make. They're cheaper. Um, the materials themselves, it kind of, it's okay that they're ephemeral, right? They go up, they come down. It, it's kind of much more in keeping um, with the, the material reality of the Catholic community, but these these traditions of building street arches and having competitions for who can make the most beautiful Columba arch um, became a kind of overnight tradition. Uh, The other thing that I think was fascinating was this connection, um, just like romantic nationalists all over Ireland um, were getting really, really enthusiastic about ruins and um, kind of emblems and examples of a kind of Gaelic-Irish past. The same thing happened in Derry. And so I spend some time talking about um, the Green Inn, right? The Green Inn Alec. And uh, it lays about, it's about three miles outside of the city center. And it has a really ancient kind of, you know, historical... um, Genealogy or pedigree, and by the 1870s, the thing was totally falling apart. Farmers around um, the um, this kind of former sort of castle, Bronze Age castle, um, were just taking the stones away to build, you know, fences for their farms. Um, but during this time, um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was reclaimed, not by the people of Donegal so much, but by the people of Derry, who saw in it a kind of um, uh, um, something to be proud of, something that was a physical remnant of a past that was really different from the one that was represented by Londonderry and by the walls and by the celebrations that were so, um, by that point, already firmly ensconced within the cityscape.
0: You move from this pre-partition era um, into this period, we'll say between um, the partition, the creation of of Northern Ireland and, uh, and a free state of Ireland. But then between that period and World, the end of World War II, politics is, is very taboo. But instead you you show this wonderful story of how the arts um, kind of become this way of building um This this cultural identity um, in this period.
1: Yeah. So on the eve of Irish independence, uh, things had kind of begun to change in Derry. And actually, in 1920, um, there were enough sort of voters of a Catholic and nationalist uh, background and persuasion to elect um, the first majority of um, of city council members, and therefore to appoint a Catholic and nationalist mayor for the first time in the city's history, and so you you know you end this period of you know leading up to independence with dairy Catholics just kind of you know really confident that there is going to be Irish independence, that they are going to be part of it, that the things that they consider kind of important and that they've been building over the last generation um, are in step with what's happening in other parts of Ireland. And they're sort of, you know, um, I don't know if they're in denial, but it's kind of, there's an incredulity that partition would actually happen, right? There's a kind of surprise. And it's fascinating, you know, in In the light of what's happening now in Northern Ireland, it's really fascinating to to go back to that first Catholic mayor, um, Mm -hmm. Hugh O'Doherty's speeches, because, you know, you you would think that... um, think Michelle O'Neill was kind of making them, you know, they're, they're all about reconciliation and they're all about multiple pathways to identity. And they're all about finding sort of common ground. Um, but that, you know, but, but that, that sort of like that period ended very abruptly, uh, with, with partition and with, um, some political machinations, um, which are understood, you know, as redistricting, um, the word that I use in my book is often the word gerrymander, um, in order to kind of make make it harder uh, for Catholic nationalists to um, exert their political voices. And there was a logic to this. And, you know, I also kind of present that, that um, the business owners in the city were largely Protestant and unionist, And if you looked, kind of made a close look at the tax rolls, the argument that they made was that they foot the bill for a lot of what happened in the city through the taxes generated through the businesses that they ran. And so the ways that voting sort of changed in order to kind of take away some of that one man, one vote, um capacity and return a little bit of power to business owners and head of householders just meant that, um, for Catholic nationalists, the little bit of political power that they had attained on the eve of partition, um, was gone right by, um, by the, by the, the, the sort of swoop. And, um, And there also, I think it's really important to understand, is that partition brought with it a real crisis, not just about sort of how to feel, but about what to do, right? And so this idea of abstention, you abstain from politics, you don't take your seat in the city council and municipal government, you don't take your seat in Stormont, Right um this is you know you people have made different arguments about this and i think a lot of times it's understood as sort of you know um the kid who just isn't winning so throws up his marbles and walks away right this this notion of the catholic culture of, of grievance and the sort of the whinging stubbornness of people who aren't playing the game right they just walk away from the game um it, it, it's a really strong kind of narrative thread running through this period between the twenties and the sixties. But some of, you know, some of the research that's been done about the politics of that period leading up to um, abstention sort of suggests that it really, it, it kind of didn't, there wasn't a lot of point of participating in, in politics. Like it was really a losing venture and the energy that that was taking was kind of doubly exhausting is the way that I understand it, right? You're participating in a system that you didn't want and you don't feel recognized by. And also that system is not recognizing your votes, right? In a really practical way. So, you know, the community life, artistic life, education, the institutions of a Catholic and still Irish identified, um, kind of cultural tradition, including Catholicism itself and Catholicism as an extremely performative kind of way of understanding worship and as an extremely, um, Collectivized and community oriented way of understanding a faith tradition, these things become um, important in ways that politics, sort of, you know, capital P politics, do not. They um, invite and make use of members of Dairy's Catholic community's energies. Um, And in some ways, You know, I I hate to sort of overplay it because I don't it it, it's not as much as a, a kind of question of separate spheres, but it's a way of um of living according to one's um cultural logic that is also not running into constant conflict and interference with the folks who have more um political and economic power clout and, and just capital. So, um, so that's, you know, so that's where all these sort of strands come together. Um, The Derry Fesh is founded um, as a means of sort of amplifying Gaelic traditions, Irish dance traditions, Irish music traditions, Irish historical sort of um, framings and understandings becomes like super important. Um, The consecration of St. Eugene's, which is the the sort of diocesan see, The consecration can only occur when a church community has paid off its debts. And so for Catholic dairy, that consecration is not only a religious ceremony and a, a symbolic sort of act. Um, it's also a means of saying that despite poverty and despite some sort of economic privation and lack of political power, um, they were able to raise the money and kind of prove themselves as a community um who could stand on its own right and who could come and pull together in order to um concretize the things that mattered to them um and i spend a lot of time talking about things that are really subtle like nursery rhymes and songs and ghost stories and um, Kind of traditional rural Irish um, rituals, you know, things like uh, making St. Bridget's crosses on St. Bridget's Day or taking windbush or, you know, what people know of as gorse and putting it above um, folks' doorways on, you know, on Beltane or May Day. Um, These things that, you know, they don't feel super urban, they don't feel like part of the logic of kind of this new modernizing Northern Ireland. but they maintain these connections to um, Irish traditions, Irish cultural um, practices. And um, I don't know, it's sort of like throwing their hat over the wall. If you've ever heard that expression um, towards the free state, right. Saying like, we are, we're still, we're still Irish. um, Even though Mm. there's a border now between, you know, you and us. Um, I focus so much on Donegal. I think because so much of Derry's Catholic nationalist community um, came from Donegal. Um, many folks came mm-hmm. through Donegal to leave, you know, to leave to go to Canada and the U.S. and to England um, and to Scotland. Even um, folks also came to Derry from Tyrone and Fermanagh. Um, but there is this kind of again this imaginary about the relationship between the city of Derry and um, and Donegal, especially the Inishowen Peninsula. Um, that just comes through over and over again in in the sources.
0: If the one of the things that you are highlighting in this period is the the subtleness of some of these um, acts of memory, some of that subtleness starts to evaporate in the post World War II era. Things start to become a little bit more political, a little bit more overt. Um, one of the things that I found so interesting is the way that memories and celebrations and and kind of Depictions of the victories of uh, the Allies in World War II um, starts to become an area of of conflict, and the way that even the the recent war is being remembered and commemorated. So, could you talk a little bit about that and how that leads us into this uh, eruption, which maybe wasn't quite so much of an eruption, but a a culmination of this of this work of memory?
1: I think the I think the World War Two period is a really special period. Uh, in Northern Ireland's history and in Derry's history. I mean, Derry was this sort of, um, you know, it was an important place in the Battle of the Atlantic, and it became home to um, lots and lots of Allied, um, you know, armed forces, Navy, um, Air Force, and, you know, there are German U-boats being sunk off the coast at Lissa um, there's, there's just this real sense, like the city, there's an economic boom that happens, um, because of the second world war and a lot of industry, um, and requirement for, for manpower, um, that happens because of it. And and I think that there's this, I think there's this sense in dairy during the second world war, um, for everyone, right. That, that fighting fascists was the right thing to do. And I, and I, and I think that, you know, it, this still, I think, is a really sort of tender historical moment, right? The sort of the de Valera's kind of flirtations um, with German, you know, representatives and, um, and also the kind of quiet promises that if De Valera entered with the Allies, entered the the war on the side of the Allies, that they would um, that Britain would sort of surrender Northern Ireland and lead the way towards um, a unified Ireland. These are all things that are, um, I, I think, they're really hard to understand historically because I think a lot of the records um, ceased to exist in ways that were somewhat intentional. Um, but I, but I think in Derry, a lot of the um, the kinds of anxieties over, um, economy and economic kind of in disparities, they weren't, they weren't negated by the war, but they were softened by the war and that's important. And I also think that these kinds of issues around nationalism and the ways that one identifies, um, not, you know, in terms of one's national identity, um, also changed because it became allies versus axis, right? And no longer was the nation state the way of understanding first and foremost, like who one is, right? Like it's the same thing I think with the EU and Brexit, like there are these different kinds of constellations that help us understand who we are and how we fit into a picture. So World War II was a really, it was just a really kind of important moment, um, but as soon as the war ended, um, there was a sense in in a lot of places in Northern Ireland and certainly in Derry that it was an important time to sort of um, reaffirm the Britishness of Northern Ireland. And so all of a sudden where that wasn't really part of a logic or a language and there was no time and there was no money for all of these kinds of um, you know, expressions of cultural and political heritage and identity. It all of a sudden became really important, right? And you know, people who were important in the war, who were significant players, who had any connection to the city of Derry, London, Derry, were of you know, being invited to come and be feted, and um, these events were sort of being tied in to longer histories that um accentuated and celebrated a long unionist tradition within the city and so nationalists and catholics kind of started to you know a feel um like bent out of shape around that and b um when when the war was over, and when victory had been secured, this idea that Ireland had remained neutral and neutrality could be equated with a kind of moral higher ground started to find its way in to the way nationalists were understanding um, themselves. And so you know, it, it's interesting to watch how wh- over the course of maybe two months, um, after Victory in Europe Day, right in May forty five, um, this this kind of era of of you know an era that was peaceful for dairy, although it was an era of war, um, kind of ended. The other thing that's important is that with the war over, um, the silent or quiet agreement to not make a lot of noise about. Um, partition or the reunification of the island, like all that, was off the books. And so, this 1945 was, was when the anti-partition party was formed in Northern Ireland. That was a um, a province-wide political party, and all of a sudden, nationalists again were committed to a more um, vibrant, a more visible, a more vocal um, kind of role as a minority party um, within the sort of within Stormont and and also locally. So this there was a resurgence um, that started in 45. And this is something that I think was really important to me. You know, one of the key character characters, political actors in this period was um, Eddie McAteer. And Eddie McAteer is, is kind of like, you know, he's like someone that you love to hate. If you're a, a, a nationalist in dairy, right? He's he's known as Half a Loaf Eddie, right? Because he was sort of, you know became famous for saying half a loaf is better than no bread um, because he was always trying to negotiate the, the, the kind of the, the place for nationalists in the city, politically fighting, redistricting, um, fighting this gerrymander. And he was always having a compromise because he was a politician of, um, of uh, you know, representing people who didn't have power. And so then he'd always have to go back to his constituency and be like, yeah, well, we got a little bit, but we didn't get a lot. Um, and and therefore, he's kind of remembered um, as being a little bit of a loser, right? And I think that I really saw something so different in the historical record. And I saw something that spoke so much of a, a group of people who were Really trying to play by a set of rules that weren't written for them and didn't really represent their best interests. And all of the ways that folks like Eddie McAteer um, were trying to carve out a space um, to kind of, you know, it, it's like they were doing parody of esteem before parody of esteem was even, uh, you know, um, uh, a sparkle in a Belfast agreement negotiator's eye, right? They were trying to sort of build this kind of vision um, of a more pluralistic Northern Ireland, of a place that had room for both and, right? Of a place that sort of um, embraced the through otherness of the cultural traditions um, and, and you know, I would argue, and I do argue in the book, that there wasn't really a lot of room for that within the public political culture of Northern Unionism at that time. It emerges, you know, as we sort of move towards the 1960s, it emerges um, in the early 1960s with a liberal unionism um, and a dairy-centered uh, liberal unionism that I think is a really understudied uh, era. In, in Derry's history and in northern Irish history um, but the deep deep sort of bipartisan kinds of uh, origins of the civil rights movement particularly in Derry um, but you know when these guys were getting going in the early 40s um, they were really speaking against um, the traditional understandings of power and I think the last thing I'll say there that it's after the Second World War that the that the IRA, what you know, what those who study the Troubles would say, the old IRA, right, the official IRA, um, kind of get re-situated and reorganized in ways that make them more visible in the city and make the kinds of debates over constitutional nationalism verse- versus republicanism or physical force republicanism, part of the conversation, whereas it had been like kind of silenced or not really part of the conversation for almost a generation.
0: You, you've been so generous with your time, Margot, And I, I, I hope that our listeners get a sense of just how much um, good material there is. So I do hope people go and, and, and get their copy from uh, the University of Notre Dame Press. But now that you're you're finished with with Derry City. Um, what, what's on the horizon for you?
1: Well, um, I have been I've been sort of working around an idea for a while that is still seeking its kind of correct expression. Um, but what I'm really fascinated by is the closure of Catholic churches. Um, particularly in New England where I live, where there's lots and lots and lots of um, consolidations and collabs, collaborations that are um, also sort of uh, closing churches and selling off uh, Catholic church real estate in order to um, pay settlements that have um, been required as part of, you know, redress of the um, clergy sexual abuse kind of crisis within the Catholic Church. And so um, while I'm not really focused on kind of the relationships between um, perpetrators and survivors, I am, I'm very much interested in and fascinated by the kinds of ripples of betrayal um, and how those ripples of betrayal, have um, merged with changing understandings um, of faith within Catholicism and also um, what has emerged, I think, in contemporary Catholicism, um, a a kind of um, dividing line politically. Like what I will simply say is that as an American, as someone who was raised in a Catholic faith tradition... Um, For the first time in my life, I really understand um, some of the lines of demarcation in Northern Ireland because politics, political ideology, and identity um, have all become kind of lightning rods, not just kind of out and around um, the faith, but certainly very much within it. Um, So, you know, anyone who sort of follows Catholic. Um, stuff in, in contemporary culture knows that there are huge conflicts between those who might follow a kind of um, Dorothy Day, Catholic worker, liberation theology, um, vision of the expression of the faith, and those who would um, espouse a much more conservative and much more politically conservative understanding of what it means to be a Catholic in good standing. So that's what I'm thinking about. I'm mm. still trying to figure out where it's going, but um, I'd really like to, you know, use my skills as a public historian to find some ways for people um, to express their loss of their home churches. Right? Catholics don't talk about their church home um, in the way Protestants talk about their church home, but it doesn't mean that we didn't have them, you know. And it doesn't mean that the loss of those church homes is not a really huge kind of thing for lots of people. So that's what I'm working on.
0: Wow, that sounds like a very important work and, and also very interesting. And so I uh, wish you the best of, of luck on that and I can't wait to, to follow that project as it, as it develops and maybe we can have you back on and talk about it one of these days. Well, this has been a conversation with Margot Shea, author of Dairy City, Memory and Political Struggle in Northern Ireland, You can get your copy now from the University of Notre Dame Press. Margot, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Ryan.
0: And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. Visit newbooksnetwork.com where you can browse our catalog of over 10,000 author interviews. But that's it for now, and I hope you have a great day.